Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, John Loudon. Hey, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get really truthful about their creative journey and to share the lessons they've learned so that you too can create out loud. And this week we're talking to Ruth Ozeki, one of my all-time favorite novelists and now one of my all-time favorite people. She's written My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, A Tale for the Time Being, and now the book of form and emptiness that I just finished a few hours before I interview Ruth. And you're going to hear me talk about that in just a second, or rather tear up about it in just a second. This is a really, really good interview. So get ready to have your mind and your heart opened. So Ruth, as I told you before we started recording, I finished the book of form and emptiness this morning and um, I'm a wreck. (laughs) I'm really, I'm, but in the best sense of the word, because I think what your body of work has done for me, the four novels that I have read, I have not read the memoir, is expands my sense of what's possible. I don't even have words for it, but there's a transmission in this book that I am stunned by and I'm so grateful for. So thank you. Said before, I don't know whether to say to apologize or to say thank you. It's part of what the book is about is what books do to us. And you did it. That's right. Books are supposed to move us. And not that they're supposed to. A book would say, we're not supposed to do anything. (laughs) Don't lay your expectations on us. But I think that the books that we love are the books that move us. As I'm writing, I'm writing in order to investigate some questions that I have about the world, about this crazy time that we live in. It's a very confusing time, I think, that we live in now. And when I set out to write, I'm looking for answers and I'm looking for ways of thinking about and also being with some of the questions that I have. And often these are very emotional things that I feel very strongly about. So you take on the big questions, but you let the paradox of them live. All four of your books have a strong environmental and activism and message. But you never hit us over the head with it. You allow us to engage in the question with you, which I think is one of also what makes it so powerful and makes it so moving and makes you think. I don't write things because I have answers. I write things because I have questions. <laughs> if I'm writing, it's usually because I have a question that I want to investigate. There's never one answer to anything, right? There, there's always multiple answers and multiple ways of thinking about things. I hope ends up happening is that readers will read my books and be moved by them to ask these questions, to join in that inquiry. So I certainly don't want to hammer, I don't have answers. So I, it's not like I want to hammer people over the head with, with my whatever, my beliefs or my thoughts or anything like that. No, that's not what it's about. That's very brave. I think a lot of people, when they set out to make their creative work, do think they need answers or they need to provide yes. or find answers 
hearing you say that just makes my whole kind of heart just opens up in my mind of, oh, what questions do I have instead of what answers? You're an interviewer, so you know this. The inviting way to enter a dialogue is with questions. What shuts (laughs) down a conversation is when one person starts providing all the answers. And we all know (laughs) people like that, don't we? But another facet of it, I think in in Buddhism, we talk about, in Zen, we talk about Suzuki Roshi, who's the, the teacher, the kind of founding teacher of the branch of, of Zen that I practice. He had this, this phrase or this teaching, which was, in the beginner's mind, possibilities are endless. In the expert's mind, they are few. The way that I like to approach any writing project is with this attitude of not knowing. And hopefully by the, by the time I finish the project, I'll know a little bit more. But another thing that we often say is not knowing is most intimate. The real intimacy to not knowing, there's a vulnerability involved in not knowing that makes you very open and receptive to things if you can be. If you can allow that and not get hung up on, oh, I should know. But I don't feel like I should know anything. It's really confusing. <laughs> it is part of the gift of getting older. Yeah, is going, I, know, right? I really know nothing. Uh, (laughs) I know nothing. I used to think I knew things. And then I thought I needed to know things, especially parenting. And now it's, yeah, I don't know anything. I've always resented writing in the personal growth genre because it feels like you're supposed to have answers and be the expert. And I've always tried to subvert that with here's ideas, here's suggestions, here's research. Now make it your own. Take the Buddha's words to heart. Try this out for yourself. Don't take anyone else's word for it. Yet, I've always felt this internal pressure that I've been working with for decades, not for years, but decades, to let go of the need for an answer. I think it's one of the things that really leads me over and over to the edge of creative burnout. And I feel like Ruth just gave me a door to walk through. And I think the reason why it has been an issue for me is because it's scary and vulnerable to not know. And yet there is where all the energy is, where all the truth and energy and connection. Amazing. That's hilarious. Yes, absolutely. I think so much of this is just about getting older and accepting the fact that we don't maybe know quite as much as we think we do. But to go to that not knowing and vulnerability, I'm thinking about this form of art called interviewing. And you're also a professor. So there's a form of art and encounter where we do feel like we need to know. So how do you negotiate that? I would be terrified if I was coming in here, not knowing your body of work, not having spent time Mm -hmm. reading your other articles and interviews, listening to other podcasts. And I'm sure you would feel terrified going into the classroom. Yeah, no, of course. And and I do prepare and I prepare a lot. And it's because I'm teaching creative writings. I'm teaching something that is creative. And this is, I think, what you do as well. And so there's no knowing that. That really does depend on every person finding their own way of being creative. There's no one end. So this is something that I'm constantly hearing myself. I preface every remark with, this is how I do it, but everyone is different. Every writer is different. And so what I'm trying to do is encourage myself students anyway to expect and to realize that no there's no right way to do it and try a whole bunch of different things keep trying something different until you find something that works and then again in my experience I find something that works and it's working for one book and then it's it trying to work. apply it for the next book it's it already doesn't work so then you start the process all over again it's like, okay what's going to work for this book so it's always a kind of an, an open inquiry and I think that's really what I'd like my students to come away with is 
this sense of approach the practice with, with openness, with curiosity. And so I think it goes back to this idea of questions again. There's nothing like curiosity to make any situation work. As soon as you stop being curious about something, then it's over, certainly in writing. But curiosity requires self-trust. Like one of the things I'm just getting from you being in this moment with you is there's a deep sense of trusting yourself, of knowing yourself as much as we can know ourselves because we're mysteries as, much as, as we humans. Can. Yeah. <laughs> Building that self-trust, especially in the women creatives I work with, it seems sometimes very difficult. It is. I think it is really difficult. That it's um, been beaten out of us by the culture yeah. or by yeah. teachers or by our own fantasies of what we're supposed to be. I think the fantasies about what we're supposed to be, I think that projection of some kind of ideal of some kind of, this is the way I should do it because this is the way it's done. And mm -hmm. since I really don't believe that at the beginning, of course, I also believed that I bought into that. And so this is one of the wonderful things about getting old too. <laughs> little by little, you realize no, there's no way this needs that this should be done. It's up to me. I get to choose. No right answers. Nobody knows. I get to choose. Repeat after me. I get to choose. I get to choose. Nobody knows. No right answers. What do I want to try? What do I want to experiment with? Oh, such freedom. I get to mm. choose and I have to keep experimenting. And if it works for me, then that's the way, that's the way it should be. But that is, you're right. It, it's something that I think you have to grow into. And, and I think the way, the way that we grow into it is by practice. And for me, it's a writing practice and it's a meditation practice. It's a Zen practice. It's doing something over and over and over again. <laughs> There's that word practice. A lot of our guests say, and I'm thinking particularly about Beth Pickens, a recent also fantastic episode, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that. Are you sure you're subscribed to the podcast? Because that means you get all these amazing, rich, really life-changing conversations. Practice. What are you practicing? I remember in writing one of my books, The Life Organizer, I asked that question. What are you practicing? Are you practicing things that are generative, that are life-giving, that help you grow and wake up? Or are you practicing, say, thinking that your creativity isn't enough or that whatever you're making sucks? That's a practice too. What are you practicing? And, and I think through that process of repetition, of practice, that's where the trust comes from. You realize it's like any muscle. The muscle gets stronger. And again, this is something that I try to impart to my students, encourage them to just, to just keep at it and just keep doing it again and again. Even when all of the demons come up and start telling you that, no, you're not doing it right, or you should be doing it this way, or all of those negative voices that we've really internalized, I think, especially yeah. as women, because it's a survival issue for women. <laughs> we internalize, I think, these voices because we learn to do that early in order to survive. We have to be very patient with ourselves and also very patient with those, those negative voices too, because really they're just trying to help. They're trying to help us survive. So, Sometimes they yeah. can be allies and become good, good partners. They've helped me definitely build the business part of my writing and teaching life. Yeah. Did you have a Zen practice when you wrote your first novel? That was, let's see now, that was 1997, 98. Yes, I was practicing, uh, not Zen at that time. I was practicing in a Tibetan, with a Tibetan teacher. And I had been practicing and meditating regularly since... 
Oh, I'm going to say 1995. That's when I started mm-hmm. taking it seriously. I'd, I'd meditated a lot before that as well, but it was really only in 1995 that I got a hit of what was to come. My my parents were getting old. My mom was showing signs of dementia. My dad, his heart was failing. It was very clear to me that he was not going to be living much longer. I realized like, whoa, this is really serious. All of this sickness, old age and death stuff, like it's real. <laughs> I'm not getting out of this. Like I thought I was special and somehow I wasn't going to go through this. I remember that moment. My mom had as well. So it's like when it hits you, you're just like, whoa, this is serious. And then I'm an only child. So I realized like this whole thing is going to fall on me and I need strength. I need to figure out a way of getting stronger so I can, I can bear this burden. I can sit through what and get through what I need to get through. I I just had a, a kind of instinct that Buddhism was going to help and would provide that. And certainly the meditation practice would provide, would help me strengthen my backbone. I started meditating regularly and practiced in the Tibetan tradition for a while, and then ended up moving to the West coast and uh, meeting Norman Fisher, who's Mm -hmm. my teacher now. And he has an organization called Everyday Zen. And I started practicing with him and it was great because Norman's a writer. I felt like he really got it. He knew Mm -hmm. what it was to be a creative person and Mm -hmm. to be somebody who's practicing formally in a spiritual tradition. And so that was a wonderful sort of turning point for me. To answer your question, I had been practicing, I I think My Year of Meats was published in 1998. I had just started practicing seriously then. I really see your practice impacting. I love them all, but they've changed, especially this last book. It feels like it's holding formlessness in a form. Mm. Yeah. I think that's true because it's, it's so hard to describe in words, isn't it? But the- Sadly- because yeah, we're writers. Because <laughs> we're That's writers. True. Exactly. <laughs> but it's exactly that. You know, what I was what I was trying to suggest was really the way that, you know, that books in this case, but the way that anything, work of art, any relationship, the way it comes into being. In other words, it finds form. And so it was exactly that process of emergence that I was trying to evoke somehow in the book. And I think one of of the things about the, the book that was was fun for me was that the book is actually the narrator of the book. Right? I know, that, yeah. Sometimes when I'm reading, and I have to say, because near the end of the book, you write about how the reader changes each book or each thing that yes. they write. And yes. I thought, oh God, sometimes I feel like I fail the books. Sometimes oh. I feel like I'm not getting it. And, and when the book yeah. was talking to me, and I don't mean to give too much away y'all, so we'll be really yeah. careful. So you can read yeah. the amazing book and have the experience that I had. What is she doing here? Am I getting it? Am I understanding it? Well, I think you certainly did understand it. No, my idea about reading and writing is that it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's a. It's actually more than that. It's a collaboration. I write this book. It takes me eight years to do it, but I eventually finish it. <laughs> Talk about a book as if it's singular, as if it's a thing. But I don't think it is a thing. I don't think it exists as a single entity. I like to think of it more that the book goes out into the world and it starts to interact with 
others. And so it interacts with you, it interacts with other readers. And that's where the collaborative process begins. Whatever book, you know, that you and I then over time, because this is, I'm not actually actively participating in it anymore, <laughs> but over this kind of long stretched out time, which could be hundreds of years mm-hmm. in the case of a long dead author, that we co-create a book that is unique. And so whatever book you and I have co-created, I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. And that is our book. That's the case. The same thing holds with hopefully thousands of other readers, that there are thousands of versions of the book out there and they're all equally valid. They're relationships at that point. Do you ever want to know? Do you ever wish you could go into that collaboration wherever it exists as the writer and go, oh my God, what did Jen actually experience in her brain? And this is why when I I do a lot of interviews, right? Mm -hmm. Every interview is different because Mm -hmm. every reader has read a different book. And so it's always interesting to me, even when the question is the same, the reader is different. And so then answering the question and the kind of dialogue that ensues is always interesting to me because it's like, ah, it's a way that you get to venture in. Yeah, Yeah, you get to venture in a little bit to my experience. That's right. Towards the end of the book, you also wrote one of the characters, the B-man says, stories are real, my boy, they matter. If you lose your belief in your story, you lose yourself. I believe this to be so true. And I believe we're living in a time where the stories that we collectively agree on are falling apart, they're fraying. And that needs to happen. And a lot of the stories are bad stories. They're wrong stories. But it also feels really scary because it feels like some of the stories are what's kept us able to communicate with each other, to Mm -hmm. coordinate action, to have Mm -hmm. functioning governments. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And my belief in stories has gotten even stronger, but at the same time, it feels more uh, misty. I think that's true. And I think that has a lot to do with media as we know it now. It has a lot to do with the internet. It has a lot to do with social media. It has to do with the way that media platforms are changing. Back in the day when there were three major broadcasters and they all broadcast CBS, NBC, ABC, they all broadcast the same news stories. There was a very clear sense of what the nation's story was. And that was the official story. There were all sorts of stories being told that just weren't being recognized. But, But in any case now, it has fractured the internet and social media. I think it has gotten very fragmented and very hazy, very, there's lots and lots of particulate matter that are stories floating around in the world. It does become, I think, hard to find some kind of coherence in the narrative that we attach to. But I also feel like that the thing about stories is that they change all the time. They're constantly changing. They're constantly evolving. And so even when we think we have a story and we think that's the right story. Time passes and then you suddenly realize, oh, that's not actually the right story at all. This is the right story. And you believe in that one for a little while and then time passes and you realize, oh, that wasn't the right story either. Growing up is certainly about that. A number of times I smack myself on the head (laughs) thinking like, what was I thinking? (laughs) True. Very true. It brings us back to that curiosity too and that not knowing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Realizing that that there's almost a younger part of me that wants those stories to stay the same. Yes, exactly. We grab onto stories because they tell us who we think we are, but that isn't who we are. It's who we think we are. That we find some comfort, I think, in having these, these kinds of firm identities. They're evolving. They're changing. They're not rigid. If they were not changing, we'd be dead. When when we die, that's when the story stops. That's when we can no longer create new ones. I I just want to 
to ask one more thing about this. If you lose your belief in your story, you will lose yourself. But mm-hmm. doesn't meditation help us lose our belief in the well, story about ourselves? I think you're referring to that Thomas King quote. He's an Aboriginal. Yes, indigenous, it was. And I think the quote goes something like the thing about stories. The truth right? about stories is that is all we are. That's right. The truth we are about the stories, stories we tell ourselves. We make our, we right. make ourselves, we make ourselves up. <laughs> that's right. We make ourselves up. Yeah, that's right. The bottleman has a weird uh-huh. Slovenian kind of accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the key is that, that we are constantly making ourselves up and to see that it's not just a story. In other words, it's not an unchanging, rigid I- identity. No, truth. it's a story. It's a story mm-hmm. and it can change. And we, we know this because of, for example, neuroplasticity. Brains are always changing. Our stories are always changing. And thank goodness, because otherwise we would never learn. So I think that the idea is just holding that story lightly. lightly. You've done a lot of different creative mediums. <laughs> <laughs> I, wa- <laughs> I wonder if you've noticed anything in common about how you work across these different uh, mediums. I think my method of working has changed over the years. And I've become a lot looser. And I think this has to do with meditation. And it also has to do with what you talked about it earlier, trust or or faith that these days, I think I welcome that not knowing into the process. I'm much less controlling about the way that I work. And I also invite a little bit of randomness and chaos into the process, because I think that's interesting. And also because I know my brain and I know its limitations really well. We all get into kind of ruts of thinking Mm -hmm. and I know what my thinking ruts are. And so when I'm working on a new book, I'm always looking for ways of knocking myself, knocking myself out of my rut. And I don't think I used to do that as much. I think I was more of a kind of control freak planner, but these days I really am more of a fly by the seat of your pants. And also just inviting that in, trying to bring in unexpected elements. It's fantastic. You can feel. (laughs) it. You can feel it. When I read an interview about your mom having a box that was labeled empty box, and then it ends up in the book. And I'm like, oh my God, I, you can feel the liveliness of that randomness. It totally works, but I I would never tell a writer to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so clear to me as a writing instructor, teacher, mentor, that Ruth is a great writing teacher because she keeps saying, here's what I do, make it your own. I believe that to be so essential. I'm such a stand against teachers who are like, do it this way. This is the only way to do it. If you encounter that in any kind of creativity mentor teacher, run the other way. We need teachers and mentors who are like, oh, hey, this is what I do. Now, now let's talk about how you can practically apply it to yourself. That is a core lesson in my program right now giving you tools and then helping you reflect on them over and over again, week after week. Are you using them? Are you making your own? Do you have to change them in some way? We don't want to get precious about our process, but we don't want to ignore it. And if you're ready to write in a way that is more fun, one of my students said, you make writing fun, more prolific, less angsty. No matter your level of experience, this is a program that's made for people who have been writing for years, who have been published, and people who are just starting to discover their voice. Go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash write hyphen now and check it out. We start soon. Love to have you. 
I think it also really has to do with the kind of thing that I'm trying to write. And absolutely. Yeah. And in this case, what I was, what I was experimenting with was this idea of objects. I was, I was experimenting with the idea of objects, in this case, objects speaking. The objects speak to the protagonist, to, to the little boy. He hears them speaking. And so I knew that there were going to have to be lots of objects in the book. And so then it was a question of how do I, what objects do I invite into the book? And I looked around the room and immediately felt bored. And so <laughs> then I thought, you know, I'll make a rule for myself. I'll make it into a game. When something enters my life, an object or an idea, or even a, a piece of dialogue that's overheard, and it makes me sit up and pay attention, or another way of putting it, it is it sparks joy, you know, then I will put it in the book and see what happens. And I'll do a little show and tell here. My editor went to the Bahamas. She's writing a book about pirates. And so she went to the Bahamas on vacation and she came back and she brought me this. Oh, it's the snow globe, everybody. You can see it on the YouTube channel. That's right. It's the snow globe. The snow globe in the book in the book. And so I thought, oh, this is fantastic because in the book, the the mother, Benny's the little boy who's hearing the object speak and his mother, Annabelle, has developed a bit of a hoarding problem. She's a collector. When I saw the snow globe, I thought, this is fantastic. I will give this to Annabelle, the mother. So I did. I gave it to Annabelle. And the next thing I knew, she was on eBay, of course, (laughs) collecting snow globes. So that was really cool. That was really great. Another thing was I was out at a Chinese restaurant and I got this fortune. Uh, which says the world is a beautiful book for those who read it. So, and I thought, this is fabulous. I can't believe it. I'm going to put that in the book. So I did. And it generated a kind of vocabulary of images of little slips of paper with pertinent messages on them. So mm-hmm. that's where that idea came from. Another, I'll just tell you one more. I love these. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on an airplane. This was pre-pandemic. And I was on an airplane and I was reading, I think, an in-flight magazine. And there was an interview with David Mitchell, the writer David mm-hmm. Mitchell, um, who I love. And I think the interviewer had asked something like, what would you never put into a novel because it was just so stupid? And David Mitchell's answer was, (laughs) David (laughs) David Mitchell's answer was, fridge magnets that dead people use to talk to the living. And I was like, oh man, I am totally putting fridge magnets into this book. It was like he threw down the gauntlet. Yeah, it was like he threw down the gauntlet. I was like, yeah, let me add it. So I did a conversation. I did a conversation with him recently and I was like, those fridge magnets <laughs> counted the story to him. And he said he had no memory of that. I love the freshness that that brings. Yes. I can just feel it in my whole body. It reminds me of an interview we did with a conceptual artist, Carrie Smith. And her whole creative process is random. I want you to tell me about when you decided to write My Year of Meets, your first novel. Because the way that I read some of the interviews, it sounded like one day you just started writing and you kind of wrote furiously and you ended up with this fantastic book. And somewhere else I read that you said, I always wanted to write novels. But of course, at that point, you were a filmmaker. And I was like, how could you write something so great? like never having studied or or thought about it or tried before. And I was a little jealous. It's never that simple, right? I wanted to write novels ever since I first read one, probably when I was about, I don't know, six, seven years old. And so I always wanted to to do that. I was born in 1956. So it was probably like 1961, 62, somewhere around there that I first started reading like whole books, fictional books, novels. And I wanted to write them. And I remember trying to write stories back then. I also remember that that as I was going through elementary school and also high school, junior high school, wanting to write stories, but not feeling entitled to the genre. 
Entitled to the genre. Entitled to a voice. Entitled to the time. Entitled to the resources. Entitled to create because it brings you alive, because it's how you make meaning. Entitled. Are you entitled? Do you find that entitlement? Do others support you in that entitlement? I support you in that entitlement. Does the word entitlement make your teeth grind? Is that too much? But what else should we call it? Your desires to create, to express, to make are essential. They matter. And I hope this show week after week reminds you of that. I'm mixed race. I'm a half, mm-hmm. I'm half Japanese, half Caucasian American. Back then, there weren't any well-known Asian writers. Of most of the writers were, most of them were white. Many of them were male and a lot of them were dead. And so <laughs> none of these things applied to me. And so I remembered thinking early on that I, I, there aren't any writers like, you know, novelists like me, but I could write poetry. Maybe I could write haiku. That was like mm-hmm. culturally appropriate. Problem is that I'm very verbose. And, and I'm not a particularly good poet. And so that was that was a kind of short-lived period. But I did write poetry for a long time because I, I didn't know how. I just, I didn't feel entitled to the genre. And this was Maxine Hong Kingston didn't publish Warrior Woman until uh, the 19, 1970s. And Joy Luck Club wasn't published until the 1980s. And I was already in, yeah, I think I was 30 or something by then. It was late for me to understand and to really think, well, I, could, I can do this too. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. Diversity in publishing is is such an important thing. Representation. Um, <clears throat> representation is hugely important, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it gives us a sense of what our story might be. Secretly, I was writing stories the whole time. I was in college. I, I remember I took the one creative writing class that was offered and I loved it. After I graduated from college, I was pursuing an academic career at that point, but I was always writing fiction. I thought I would go into comp lit. I thought I would get a PhD and teach comp lit, comparative literature. And then sort of one thing led to another. I was in Japan. I, you know, met a guy, fell in love, came back to the to the States, and I had to get a job. I was living in New York, and I had been studying classical Japanese literature. There were not a lot of jobs in New York City at the time for somebody with my skill set. My, my fiancé at the time was working in the film business, and he had been working in the art department, was making the switch over to the camera department. He suggested, because I had some art skills, that I start taking his art jobs. The first job I took was as a storyboard artist for a film called Matker Mutant Hunt. <laughs> so I'm showing now the DVD uh, cover of the, the film. I got a job as a storyboard artist for, for Mutant Hunt. They ran out of time and they looked around the table and they were like, oh, we forgot to hire an art director. And I was the only one who wasn't doing anything. And they pointed at me and they said, you be the art director. I'd never set foot on a film set before. And I pointed this out to them and they were like, no problem. It was so low budget. It was painfully low budget. I think I was paid something like $200 a week or something like that to do this. I started working in the film business and I made a whole series. I helped make a whole series of movies. That one is called Breeders. Breeders. Yeah. And this one, one of my favorites. Called, yeah, right. This one is called Necropolis. There were others too. Robot Holocaust was another one. Anyway, I made a whole series of these. I didn't make them. I, I worked, worked on, on a series them. of films like this. And then I moved into television. I moved into Japanese television because I spoke Japanese. Once I was in television, little by little, I started out producing, but then I started directing. And eventually they let me start editing. I had a sense from the beginning that the editing room was where I needed to be in order to learn how to tell stories. 
I just set my sights on learning to edit. And eventually they let me and I'd go out with my crew and film these crazy documentary shows, various kinds. And then I'd bring the hundreds of hours of tape back to Tokyo and sit in a disgusting little editing room that was filled with cigarette smoke for hundreds and hundreds of hours, painfully learning how to edit. And it was rough. These guys were like, not nice. Spend hours and hours putting together a sequence, they'd come in, they'd look at it and they'd say no. And then I'd have to do it again and again. That was my training in storytelling. I made a couple of independent films of my own, including Having the Bones, which is, mm-hmm. that's my mom. There's a picture of my Aww. mom here. Yeah. Isn't she cute? She's beautiful. She's, sit, she's sitting on a crescent moon. And, and then I wanted to make more films, but I had maxed out my credit cards, making, making Having the Bones, making these independent films. So I ended up getting a, a grant for, I remember it was $20,000 to write another screenplay. And I knew that I would never be able to make the film with $20,000. I think I had $30,000 worth of credit card debt at the time. So that was a problem. I just misappropriated the the funds, the grant money, and decided that I would write a novel instead. And this was my year of meets. And it was based on the experiences that I'd had as a documentary film director for Japanese television. I remember when I sat down to write that film, I had always struggled with chronology. How do you move a story through time? If you have a character walking into a room on the far end and has to move across the room to all the way to the other side of the room where the action's happening. Back when I was first starting, I felt like I needed to watch the character (laughs) across the room, which is really boring. I didn't understand that you could cut. I didn't understand about editing. All those hundreds and hundreds of hours I spent suffering in editing rooms in Tokyo taught me how to do it. What have you learned from other jobs, from other mediums, from other experiences, from your suffering that want to come into your work now that need to be incorporated or teach you something? What insights did you get at that fast food job or as a waiter or as a governess? Sorry, I've been watching too much British TV. (laughs) What did you learn that you're dismissing that you can fold in like Ruth folded in all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours editing? I love this question. So when I sat down to write My Year of Meats, I suddenly knew how to do it. I had techniques that I'd never actually identified, (laughs) but I knew how to do it. I knew how to cut a story together quickly and make it suspenseful and make it it a kind of page-turning, driving story that people would want to read because television is a very demanding medium. (laughs) And if you don't grab a viewer right off the bat, you've lost them. So I learned how to do that. And so when I sat down to write my year of meets, I I suddenly realized like, wow, compared to film, this is easy. This is like easy. You just write it and it happens. You don't have to film it. You You don't don't have have to film it. You don't have to coordinate with all these other people. And yeah, it's exactly true. You don't have to feed your crew. You don't have to find, you don't don't have to find bathrooms for them. It's like, you just write it and it happens. It was a hugely liberating for me. I love that because one of the things I really do believe is that everything we We've learned as people and as creative people, we can use. Yes, 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 
Yeah. But it's that moment of recognizing yeah. that is yeah. so precious and important, putting those things together. I think the other thing that I really understood then is that if you're a creative person, if you're a writer or filmmaker or anything else, as you say, nothing is wasted, including all of the pain you know, <laughs> and suffering in your yes. life it yes. is you make it into something. And so it's a, it ends up being, it might be painful and it might be horrible at the time when you're trying to survive it, but it's a gift. Eventually, if you make something from it, it's, it becomes material. And I think so much of my own healing has happened when yes. I made it into something for someone else. Very different than when I'm maybe journaling about it or just processing. And, th- and that actually brings me to a question. You've said you keep a process journal for each novel. Mm-hmm. I would love you to tell us a little bit about that and how also you don't get sucked into only processing and not actually writing the book. I have a kind of I have a kind of way of using the process journal. I've kept one ever since I think 1996 or so. And it's the same one, although I do break it into separate documents from time to time. Yeah. So I was using it when I was writing My Year of Meats. I was using it when I was writing All Over Creation, A Tale for the Time Being, this, the, all of the, the process of every single novel has been worked through in the process journal. And I think of the process journal more as, it's almost like a physical space. Or another way I sometimes think of it is that it's like a friend. It's a friend who never gets tired of your sessions and you can always talk to your process journal about any aspect of your writing. Process journal shares your interests and your passion. The thing that's interesting about the process journal is that it's always a little bit wiser than it's always just a little bit wiser and it's unfailingly supportive, never gets bored with with all of your your Michigas. It's committed to standing by you through thick and thin, through through everything that you do. So the way I use it is I I do use it to to whine and complain. Okay, mm-hmm. so that that's it. it listens to me when I whine and complain about being stuck or whatever. I ask questions. It's a place where I record my questions. And it goes mm-hmm. back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. at the very beginning. It's one thing to have a question. It's another thing to write it down and to formalize it. By writing down my questions in my process journal, it makes them real. It makes them concrete. I won't forget them. And then very often I'll use the process journal as a place to brainstorm answers. I'll have a question and, and then I'll just almost close my eyes and start brainstorming answers, a list of answers, a list of possibilities. They're not even answers. Let's call them possibilities. So I brainstorm these lists of possibilities. Sometimes I do it. Most of the time I do this on the computer. And the reason is because I want to keep it with me all the time and you Mm -hmm. run it. I'll never run out of pages if it's on the computer. And, but sometimes I do move on to the page when I want to do idea clouds or just Mm -hmm. play in a more nonlinear way. And so that's fun too. What I try to do is at the end of every writing session, I check in with my process journal and I'll ask some questions or give myself an assignment for the next day. So it's a place where I also hold myself accountable. And very often, if it's a question that I've asked, the unconscious is a wonderful thing and it does a lot of work. <laughs> We're not conscious. <laughs> and, and so certainly at night in a dream state, it, it's working. And so if you've articulated the, the question and made it concrete, very often I'll find that I'll wake up the next morning with, with ideas about the direction to take something, to ideas for the scene or whatever. So that's really helpful. So the first thing I do the next morning before I start a writing session is I check in with my process journal and I look. That way you're never confronting the blank page. 
Did you hear how Ruth doesn't come to the page blank? That she always has something that she's been thinking about, noodling about, working on. She has a place to start. She looks at her process journal. Yes, yes, yes. This is what I teach in right now. This is what I teach in my retreats. This is what I teach in the mastermind. This can be used for any medium. Don't come to the studio, the page, the work blank. Have some place to start, even if you go in a different direction. Do some noodling beforehand. Take one of these wonderful questions that she's been talking about out for a run or a walk or while you're running the kids to school. Journal when you wake up first thing. Do your morning pages. Explore the question. You know, give yourself ways to prime the pump and make it a regular part. It is creation. It is your work. And one of the reasons we procrastinate is we come to the page or the studio or the whatever with no idea where to start. We haven't given it any thought, any warm up, and we freak out. And then we go fold laundry or we go do our day job or we we call our mother and, and check in when we were going to use that time for our own work. It's not a moral failing. It's not time management. It's the way the creative process works. It needs time. It needs fertilization. It needs thought. So your unconscious can be working on it. And so you can overcome, eliminate entirely the fear of starting because you have some place to start. You always know, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so you jump in and immediately what it is that you need to do. So that's very helpful. I make to-do lists of things that I need to research. I give myself deadlines at the end of a writing session. Sometimes if I'm trying to put the pressure on a little bit, I'll note down word count, like how many words I wrote that day or how many pages I wrote that day or how many pages I edited or whatever it is. And that's just to put a little pressure on. Sometimes I find that counting pages and counting words is not motivating. And so in that case, I'll note down the number of hours that I work. So I am very flexible about what because then your needs change all the time. They do. I, and yeah. what works for your brain to motivate you changes. Some things can seem like, oh, I did 400 words today. I suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and especially if you're trying to do it, I very often I'm trying to take words out. That's so then right. it's, yay, I took out 400 words today. Fantastic. <laughs> Could you give us an example of some of the questions that you might put in the process oh, journal? Oh, very simply, like what happens next? Very often it'll be a motivation question. I think Annabelle should go to the library, but I don't know why, why she is going or what she wants to do there. I know that Benny and his his friends need to to get out of the city. So where do they go and how do they get there? One of Benny's friends is a, is a conceptual artist named the Aleph and she's semi-homeless and she hangs out at the library. She lives in the library. And another character is the, the bee man who you mm-hmm. mentioned before, the bottle man, who's a kind of Slovenian poet philosopher who, who's missing a leg and gets around in a wheelchair. And he also hangs out at the library. So a lot of the scenes are in the library and and I just felt they really need to get out of the library. We need a change of scene here. Where can they go? And then it occurred to me, oh, okay, they are squatting in an abandoned factory building. Is the Aleph making work there? Is she making art there? And what kind of art does she make? Down to write the scene. And I know that it's an abandoned factory building. So I get Benny there and we go up into the room and they have some soup. We move over to, and I'm like a camera at this point. We move over the camera tracks over to the corner of the room where the Aleph is working. I look around and lo and behold, she's making catastrophic snow globes. She's making snow globes, but they're weird because she's weird, right? She's making snow globes of natural disasters of like the earthquake and tsunami and meltdown at at Fukushima, 9-11. She's making these weird dark snow globes. And so those are the kinds of questions that I might ask. And then when I sit down to write the 
questions have been percolating in my mind overnight or however long. Mm -hmm. And so when I actually go there, I can just, rather than planning it all out, I just follow the action, follow the characters. My unconscious, I think, this is how it works. I don't know because I'm not conscious of my unconscious, but it generates the material somehow. And so I'm, as I'm following the characters, suddenly it becomes clear to me, oh, I can see the sketches for the snow globe on the wall. And so then I write it. So that's the process journal. And I, I also um, write about books that I'm reading, especially if there's stuff that I you know, would like to steal, techniques I want to try, that goes into the process journal. It's pretty open-ended. I found it just tremendously helpful. And again, I encourage my students to, to experiment with that and find a way of doing this that works for them. Ruth, there's a question I like to ask every guest at the end, yeah. and it is, what do you want to learn next? Mm. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. So right before I, right before the pandemic, I just started getting into indoor rock climbing. I, I just fell in love with it. It was just like, oh my God, this is, this is something that I can do. And then the pandemic hit and the gyms closed mm -hmm. and I had to stop. What I really want to do is get back on the wall. I, I want to climb the wall. <laughs> That's fantastic. That was completely yeah. unexpected. Yeah, I yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I would like to do. And I would like to get, I would seriously, I would like to get really good at it, but it's, I'm 65. It's probably not going to happen. So I'd like to get good enough so that it's, it's, it's fun and I can engaged and proud of myself. Thank you so much for enriching my life so much. Oh. With the books you've written and this conversation has filled me to the brim. Thank you. Oh. So much. Well, thank you so much for conversation, for, for being my collaborator and <laughs> making a wonderful book. So thank you. I treasure every one of these conversations, but that one felt like it was, I felt like everything she was saying was directly for me. Oh, please read Ruth's new book, The Book of Form and Emptiness. And if you haven't read her other books, oh my gosh, read them in order. You can watch her evolve as a writer. It's amazing. I love every single one of those books so much. I really, really do. And oh, that was a fantastic conversation. Oh, what are you gonna take away? I'm gonna take away going back to having a process journal, which I haven't been doing. I'm gonna take away big time. Questions, 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 not answers, curiosity, and randomness. Remember how randomness come at, came up in the in the interview with Carrie Smith? Oh, those two together were really, this interview and that interview, they're cooking in my mind together. Oof, yes. Next week, it's a solo episode, just me and you sitting down to talk about how to always begin again. Did you stop writing over the holidays? Did you stop painting? Did you stop exercising? Did you stop making time for your creative work? Well, always begin again. We'll get you right back into it with no shame, no blame, and no drama because you've got to always begin again. It's baked into the creative life, so let's get to it. See you next week. And in the meantime, what are you going to do? Create out loud.